Matthew chapter 5, and if you're looking for it in the Red Pew Bible, that's on page 914, 914, Matthew chapter 5. We're progressing through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're coming to the next paragraph, which, funny enough, is like the big idea of Jesus' sermon. I find it ironic that I am preaching a sermon on the sermon. I have a big idea about the big idea, and this is, this is, this is, I want to, I want to represent Jesus' main thought well this morning, so I, I hope I'm faithful to this. And I'm trying my best to be so. But verses 17 to 20 is a central, the central introductory big idea. And so let's read verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot, excuse me, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we're deeply moved that you would first of all enter into this world, taking upon yourself the capacity for misery. You humbled yourself, took on human flesh. What was yours in heaven was eternal happiness, unbounded and free, and yet you took upon yourself this capacity to suffer, and you did it willingly because you loved us and you wanted us to have relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we look into this this idea, this central thought that I believe was here in your sermon, I pray, Father, that I would be faithful in my presentation of it, that I would be able to share it clearly and represent it well. So, Father, guide us and lead us as we think about these verses. In your name we pray. Amen. So, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever considered being an animal trainer? I mean, in your youth, before you got smarter and wiser, you know, lions, tigers, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be kind of fun to be able to harness that energy and all? I think it'd be pretty good until feeding time goes wrong. Uh, Example I I saw in my social media feed uh, at one time, an incident that occurred in Utah in which uh, a man jumped into a tank to rescue the petting zoo uh, worker who was being uh, tr- attempted consumed by an alligator. 
Uh, it was an eight-foot alligator that grabbed her hand and uh, began to flip her. Uh, the alligator's name, and I kid you not, is Darth Gator. And the video, actually, that I saw accompanying this uh, includes an audience of children pressing their faces up against the glass as this is all going on. It must have been a horrifying moment for those children. But uh, Lindsay Bull was the, uh, was the trainer, and uh, many times, uh, you know, she would just bat his nose away when he climbed up on the, the, the outer, outer uh, landing area, the cement area, and uh, he's not supposed to come up on that platform, and, and so she told guests that this would not, you know, just take a moment, that this would be the boring part of the exhibit today. And she said, and so she said, she said to the animal back, and she tapped it on the nose, but this time the gator latched onto her hand and started to pull her into the tank and then started to roll. And in the roll, it was an attempt to dislocate her hand from her body. And uh, she instinctively, thankfully, decided to roll with the gator and not lose the hand. And a parent also instinctively jumped into the tank, sat and grabbed the gator on the back and held it. And thankfully, she was able to get freed and escape the tank. And then she, the trainer, then talked the guy off the alligator. Now you get on this alligator, now what do you do? And uh, it, it, it drew my... So I'm telling this story because it, it reminds me just of how much power there is in animals like this and how an over-familiarity at times can be a detriment in the process of relating with them. And an over-familiarity is a liability in this case because there's, again, you've got to have a healthy respect for that power that's there and so you don't, you don't have tragedy occur. But this is true of anything that we experience in life that has power or very familiar with and the power sometimes can be suppressed in our minds and it's so important. Like, I remember as a factory worker... I had forgotten how much torque was in a banding strap on, a, on sheet metal. And I didn't have safety glasses on. And I had the snippers. And I leaned in. And I snipped the band. And it flared, flexed, and came back and whacked me in the nose. I mean, this is true of all of life. If we forget and we don't think about the power that's inherent in torque or an animal or anything... And even when we think about the holiness of God, this is where I'm moving, the holiness of God, we forget and if we minimize the power that's existing in God himself, we also can put ourselves in a very vulnerable place. I don't know if you realize this, but at one time, fences were erected around Mount Sinai to keep people from accidentally wandering into the territory in which God was inhabiting, and His holiness could potentially have lashed out and, and hurt those people, killing them even. Distance was commanded by God because He was fully aware of His own power and at times, some have been careless around God's power, touching temple furniture, burning fire in such a way that wasn't 
according to the law, people got seriously hurt. So it's important not to become over-familiar with the law because it's an expression of God's holiness, of His power. And we do ourselves danger if we overlook the significance of the power of God's law. But I find it, it very remarkable that Jesus, when He comes to verse 17, He's been talking very very openly about your father, which is a very tender term, which doesn't, which kind of brings more of that familiarity, right? There's a familiarity, um, for example, in verse 16, he's talking about light, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. It's a very familiar term. Yet the familiarity then progresses to now a talk about the law and reinforcement of God's law. It, it, something that kind of creates a distance, a more of a distance. It's kind of funny that, you know, I'm just look, look at some of these words that he uses in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Not a yoda or a dot will pass from the law. Relax is one of the least of these commandments will be called the least. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That sounds very distant. That doesn't sound like your father, does it? I kind of like the Beatitudes more, didn't you? Like, you know, can't we have more of that flourishing talk? You know, about like, you know, living life to the fullest as a human being. Well, you actually might be surprised if you walk through these next few verses to discover that there is a blessing that comes in being honest about God, yourself, and His laws. And I believe it's the thrust of this whole sermon. I'm going to leave it to the end to give you this big idea. We're going to walk through these verses in verse 17 we see first that Jesus came to fulfill the law's demands. Seems pretty straightforward. That's what he says, doesn't it? In verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to what Jesus is referring to uh, when he says fulfillment of the law. Well, I believe first what he's doing here, he chooses to say not just the law, but also the prophets. And so some have thought that perhaps he's referring to the prophetic fulfillment of his coming. And while this is also true, however, this is a general way to talk about the emphasis in the Jewish scriptures. Jesus is, uses repetition, actually, in his sermon to highlight the beginning and end of his main thoughts. He introduces, hey, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, turn in your Bibles to chapter 7 and verse 12. We don't see the law and the prophets come up again until just about the end of his sermon. And it's like a, a parenthesis. You have two, two sets. You have a set of parentheses. 
And in verse 12, we come to that famous declaration of the golden rule. In verse 12, he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I think we should just go to this mic. Mine's, this is going in and out or something. Let's just go with the, the main pulpit mic. So what Jesus is doing, he's, this is a general, maybe this is not even working. What's that? Oh, okay. Here we go. We lost all sound, folks. I remember Pastor Gregory saying that the first duty of a pastor is to be able to speak loudly enough. So hopefully I can do it this morning. I don't have... I don't have that deep, burly voice that I wish I had, but here we go. Jesus is using repetition. He is bringing us into the center of what the law and the prophets is all about. And he's signaling, he's kind of revealing that his purpose was to come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And as the sermon progresses, we come to chapter 7, verse 12. The summation of the law and the prophets. And as Jesus is moving forward, he's, he's communicating his intention to fulfill God's law. And he encourages his listeners to hear his example, to see his example, and to follow his example. And the contrast here in chapter 5, let's go back to chapter 5, verse 17 between fulfilling and abolishing is a critical point. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, he said. Was Jesus taking down the sacred traditions? Was he, as some people feared, an interloper who was destroying the way of Jewish life? No, Jesus had a high respect for God's law. In fact, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan in the wilderness with the law of God at his lips. He had a high reverence. So when he spoke and he taught, sometimes people would say, well, by your own authority you're asserting these things. But what he communicated was still consistent with the law of Moses. Jesus anticipates the objections that people would have because he's going to teach them about the law in chapter 5, the remaining verses of the chapter. And people are going to wonder, it sounds as if Jesus is disrespecting the law. But Jesus is saying, no, I've not come to abolish it. Instead, I've come to fulfill the law's demands. Fulfill has a double meaning. The word fulfill means to give the true and completed sense. So, for example, when I accepted the call to be a parent, I knew that it would involve diapers. I knew that it would, you know, bath time. It would be Cheerios underneath the seats in the car. But after 18 years, I now have a fuller sense of what it means to be a parent. And those of you who have gone beyond my station, have also seen a dimension to parenting that I've not yet seen. You, over time, have had a fuller understanding 
and I believe that this is what Jesus is saying. There's an assumed, like in my illustration of parenting, there's an assumed relationship that I have with my children. There are demands that my children make of me that I didn't realize were all there. And yet, I also have expectations for my children. And in a greater way, God is a father too, and he has expectations that he has communicated to us. God has a relationship with the world, and he communicates expectations with mankind. These are his laws. And this expression of his intention for us, like a parent, is such that as we come up to the law, we don't always have a sense of all that it entails. And Jesus is saying, I have come to fill it full. I've come to give it meaning. I've come to give it in a way that you'll be able to understand it. He's come to fulfill it. Now, I know a lot of the laws that we look in the Old Testament, they come across as very negative, don't they? They have a negative feel because they're prescriptions against certain behaviors, but implicitly in them, there are positive assertions. So, for example, you're going to see in the next series of explanations of God's law, Jesus is going to say, not just refrain from murder, but love your neighbor. You may have in your heart the capacity to keep yourself from murdering people, but the law actually requires that you love neighbors, that you care for them. So we often see the negatives as creating distance, and they ought to because our natural inclination is towards sin, and God is holy. But Jesus didn't just come to show us a better positive view of God's law. He also, the other side of this word fulfill, is the idea of also filling it full. Filling it full. Jesus himself is going to carry out all of God's laws perfectly. We can't perfectly follow God's laws. Jesus himself is going to do what we could never do. He's going to show the world. Jesus is going to live the life that God requires, what he demands. And he did so willingly with his intent of fulfilling God's laws. You think about this. Jesus didn't just not have lustful thoughts. He also thought well of people all the time. He was fulfilling God's law completely. So I, I, I understand our reservations when we think about the law, but think about what Jesus did. He came and embraced them. He came with a desire to fulfill them. Let's move to the second. About Jesus talking about the, the, the laws of the, and their demands and how they've not diminished in the least bit. Verse 18 and 19, I, I'll read him again, follow along. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called, will be called, I gotta turn my page, great in the kingdom of heaven. The demands of the law are going to be around, Jesus says, for how long? Well, verse 18, it says, until the heaven and earth pass away. What does that mean? Well, first, I think we need to note that moral laws are as real as natural laws. Let me say that again. Moral laws are as real as natural laws. What do I mean by natural laws? Well, the laws of physics, attraction, repulsion, gravity, aerodynamics, these all have innate causes and effects, and we see the effects of these laws. So if I hold up a 10-pound weight right here and I drop it, how do I know I'm dropping it? I just let go of it. No, I'm dropping it. Because we've come to realize that when we let go, it falls. And if I don't move my feet, it's going to hurt. Cause and effect. And I think we forget that the same God who oversees the natural laws also hardwired into his universe moral laws that demand in effect. This is called justice. Justice, for example, requires that sin be punished because sin deserves punishment. We may not think of it in that light, but when a crime is committed, there is a merit that sin calls for. A crime requires a good to be done. And I don't think we think about it this way, but there is a good work in punishing crime. Because what we're doing is we're equalizing, we're bringing justice and balance back into God's moral equation. We're bringing it back. Now, I know that we think about different crimes as being more heinous, more terrifying than other kinds of crimes. But, you know, there is an abhorrence that dwells up within the soul of a person when they see things like just brutality done to the innocent children and mothers and just those things well up within us and we say, that's not right. Well, what we're doing and we're feeling internally is the sense of God's law needing to be rectified. A good work has to be done to rectify. God's moral law always moves towards a just balance, whether you see the scale in your lifetime or not. And I think it's important for us to see that. For example, God's moral law commands us not to murder. Right? But did you know that God's moral law also tells us that you shall not hate your brother in your heart in Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. What happens in your soul as you harbor hatred towards your neighbor? Bitterness. You know God knows that you were made to enjoy human relationships? Grudges destroy you from the inside out. They destroy you. They hurt you. That's punishment in and of itself. But there's more. Heaven and earth endure, and so do God's moral laws, and so do the punishments that they require. And Jesus warned that you dare not relax not even the least of these commandments, nor teach others to do the same. That's a warning. And what Jesus is saying by that is that what, must, what goes up must come down. There is something that has to happen. There is an equalization that's going to happen when we defy God's moral law. So if you're looking in your Bibles and you see in verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, that word relax, um, I think in some translations you might see the word break or you might see, um, yes, the word relax, it kind of means to, to loosen or to untie or to release. So for example, if I were to... Um, have a dog. I don't have a dog. I have cats because you don't have to tie them up. They know how to come back without getting hit. Well, they do get hit sometimes. But if a person were to have a dog and tie it up, but then later come and actually intentionally make it slack, what might happen? Well, the dog might release its head and it may actually go into the flow of traffic and be killed. Something horrible might happen. And the rabbis used to distinguish between light and heavy commandments. Just like the Catholic Church classifies mortal and venial sins. On the one hand, murder was considered to be a mortal sin. And a venial sin, like talking about your neighbor, or not even talking to your neighbor because you have a grudge, was considered a venial type of sin, something that was forgivable. But what is this doing? What this is doing is saying that crime can simply be overlooked and you don't have to expect anything to come out of it. It's kind of like relaxing the law so that people may go play in the traffic and get seriously hurt. And Jesus is communicating, he said, look, God's law is a communication to warn you. Just like signs. I, I used to live in southern Ontario. And along the Niagara River, upstream, miles up, they had these signs that warned people not to get near the river. Why did they do that? Because you might be a couple miles up the river and not realize how much power is in the motion of that river towards the falls. Those signs were a warning, and in a greater way, 
the Bible and the law that's communicated is like this warning. Be careful how close you get to God. Don't take him lightly. Don't imagine for a minute that he is safe. We can become so familiar with God's moral law that we take it for granted. Just like Lindsay Bull, who was working with that alligator, Darth Vader Snap. Now, God is not an alligator. He is not. But he is just. And he has to bring justice, and he needs to move his moral laws, and he can't otherwise be faithful to his own character. God made laws that have to be answered, just like gravity. What goes up must come down. And every sin is a crime against God. And his moral law, when it is broken, must be judged. I'd be a bad teacher, a bad pastor, if I didn't tell you this important truth. I have to admit that my desires don't always run towards God like they ought to. And in life, I'm not innocent. I'm a needy person, and I need to recognize the poverty of my own heart and inability to keep God's laws. And this is where we come to the third point, and Jesus says that you and I will not make it into heaven unless our righteousness exceeds that of the most religious in Israel. A greater righteousness is required. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would have to say, well, that's problematic. Let's look at verse 20. He says, Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think the scribes and the Pharisees would have been nodding their heads with Jesus up to this point. They had made a lot of rules to try to direct people towards God. They had added laws to laws with the good motive of trying to bring people towards God. So to speak of the righteousness that went beyond the scribes and the Pharisees might seem to be in itself an impossibility, an impossible ideal. I mean, it would be really hard to find anyone in Israel who worked as hard as possible to be righteous before God. What is Jesus getting to? Well, this greater righteousness that he's referring to is going to speak to how a person relates to the law itself. How one relates to carrying out their religious life, their personal piety in chapter 6. How one relates to daily life and anxieties of life. In the following chapter. As I mentioned last Sunday, Jesus does something remarkable in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
This is much different than what the Jews had expected to hear. You must be holy as I am holy. And as an English listener, that word perfect may sound a lot like the same thing, yet a perfect person is a flawless person in our minds, but that's not what Jesus was saying. He used a far better word, and the word perfect there in the original is a word for wholeness or single-heartedness. And the idea of wholeness or completeness is the idea of giving yourself wholeheartedly to follow God's law, to walk with him and not away from him. So when Jesus is saying that your righteousness needs to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying that your obedience to God's law must be from a heart that is honest. Wholehearted. It's honest. Have you ever heard someone say, I just hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? You ever heard someone say that? And then just maybe I'll get into heaven. That's a false hope. Why? Because that person is not being honest about their heart. They're not honest about the matter. They're positioning themselves as the hero. That... But if they were honest with themselves, they would rather say, I can't be good enough. An honest heart is necessary to claim the righteousness of Christ for oneself by faith. To live honestly underneath of God's law. This is a remarkable thing. And I believe that Jesus is providing hope for people, hope for people living underneath of God's law. I believe that Paul caught this truth in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul describes Abraham and David as people who were righteous. And Abraham was an honest person. He was honest about his inability to conceive a child. And instead... Of looking at himself, he looked to God to do that which he couldn't do himself. He believed that God could give him seed, could give him children. And that belief was counted to him as righteousness. God gave him what he couldn't produce himself. David is also described by Paul as being honest because David realized that he couldn't be holy. He needed God to supply righteousness for him. David was honest. Look at what, what Paul said, Romans 4, 3 through 8, it's, or 5 through 6 is up here on the wall, and it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. What is Paul saying? He's saying David had an honest heart. David 
look to God to supply what he couldn't do himself. That was a gift of righteousness through faith. And Jesus is providing hope here. I want, it, I, want it, I want you to see this as well because it ties into Matthew. Paul goes on and he quotes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, but he stops short and doesn't complete the last verse, part of the verse. But in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And Paul stops short there. When you go back to Psalm 32, David said, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's talking about an honest heart. An honest heart that recognizes his own inability. And he needs forgiveness from God who alone can provide it for him. This is... If you go back now to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are honest with themselves. There's no deceit in the heart that says, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. It's saying, I can't do this. I need, I, I got to come with open hands to him and have him fill my hands. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 8, for they shall see God in honest heart. What does this all mean? This is what it means. That if you're willing to be honest about your sin, it means that God will forgive you of your sin and give you the righteousness you cannot provide on your own. You cannot keep God's law. The moral laws require that we will be punished. That's difficult to hear. But Jesus says, if you have an honest heart and look to me, I will give you that which you need. Just as I gave it to Abraham, that, just as I gave it to David, you can have this righteousness that comes from, from me. And so I believe here as we come to the end of this main idea, I believe that the big idea, if I, I hope I'm faithful to representing it rightly, is that it's a sincere faith that is founded on God's ability to supply virtue you do not possess. This, this, is, what, this is what brings us into relationship with, with God. A sincere heart that looks to Him alone for what we cannot do ourselves. I've referred to Pilgrim's Progress a couple of times, and I, I want to return just to share some of the joy of coming and looking to the cross. Bunyan, in his prison cell, wrote these words. He said, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called Salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load that was on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place that was ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, a little below in the bottom a tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up 
with the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders. And it fell off his back to the mouth of the tomb where it fell. And I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while and looked and looked and wondered, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones of his angels came to him and saluted him. With, they said, Peace be to thee. And so the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him, and the third gave him a scroll with a seal upon it. Christian was looking to the cross to deliver him of the burden, but also to supply him with the righteousness that he couldn't, he couldn't muster on his own. I don't know what was in that scroll that was handed to Christian and Bunyan's dream, but I would wonder if it might have these words from David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, an honest heart recognizes that, that you are, we are sinners. It doesn't suppress the law. It doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a workaround so that I can keep the law. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They had made the law so difficult, they couldn't even keep it. But Jesus said, those who come to me with an honest heart and believe that I have fulfilled the law's demands, I will give them life for all of eternity. And I do believe that Jesus' calling responds to trust in him. And I believe that it's a sincere faith that is founded on God's ability to supply virtue that we do not possess, and that is what will bring us into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray.